Hey, everybody. Welcome to tonight's Late Night Happy Hour. Brian Kamenetsky and Andy Kamenetsky uh, coming to you. It is uh, Tuesday night. We've got some uh, some really fun stuff set up for tonight's show. Andy, not just one guest. Two guests. Two guests. Two guests tonight. Is that hot? Well, no, no, me. It was me, not you. Okay. As we, as we used to say to uh, our my little daughter Grace when she would pick up all of her bunnies, we say one puppy, two puppies, and she go like, "Oh my goodness, we have two of those on the show tonight." Jake Brennan, uh, who is the host of this the Disgrace Land podcast, um, it is so much fun that show. It, uh, you know, a great mix of of true crime and rock and roll and grimy grubby rockerness it's fantastic it, it is actually in some ways which we're going to ultimately talk about with jake more fun than sometimes i'm comfortable with it being <laughs> because right. the entire podcast for people who've never listened to it it is about rock stars rap stars r&b stars people in music and crime they are either committing crimes they are connected to a crime there's a crime being committed around them but either way that is the theme. He tells no stories about musicians not connected to criminality, which, again, on one hand is incredibly absorbing. On the other hand, I don't know if I should be enjoying this quite as much it, as it I does. do. In, in, in fairness, it leaves you with a lot of musicians to choose from. Like You would yes. think perhaps like maybe this would be restricting the amount of content that he'd be able to produce and the stories that he can tell, but it doesn't. No. They're a great many people that he has to choose from. So no, no. If anything, um, uh, he he's got he's got to cut people. That's what that's what's <laughs> even harder is just is trying to come up with the cuts for the stories because you know he's ha he's had repeat episodes about certain artists and he is not repeating himself. He's just using the same artist yep. again because a lot of these guys have a they've <laughs> got like crime. a cheesecake factory menu that you can choose from in, in terms of the actual oh, criminality remind me to tell you my favorite cheesecake story story a cheesecake factory story after this uh this stuff is done um so we'll talk to we'll, we'll bring you our interview with jake brennan here in a second and then after that um given everything that's gone on with the rams over the weekend with the uh the jared goff for matt stafford swap definitely wanted to catch up uh, and give you guys a little more insight into what's going on in Thousand Oaks, we talked to Lindsey Theory from ESPN, does a great job covering the Rams and the NFL for uh, for them. Uh, and so we'll bring that interview to you uh, later in the show. So uh, let's let's get to uh, Disgraceland. So if you don't know the show, and you should, this will give you a flavor. This is it. It is now season seven, and they are moving to Amazon Music. And so here's a little taste of what the show is david bowie the beatles lil wayne lil pete tupac big oasis the ramones graham parsons and the new york dolls made some of the most consequential music of all time and got caught up in some of the music industry's biggest scandals and true crimes these artists and more are all coming your way in season seven of disgraceland Disgraceland is hosted by me, Jake Brennan, and is the world's first and only music and true crime podcast and is available only on Amazon Music. Search Disgraceland Podcast in your Amazon Music app. Give us a follow and buckle up for a wild ride. So that's that. And I would, I, I, I highly recommend, Andy highly recommends, um, giving it a a listen um you know, I, i've been listening to this show basically since the inception i love it i i really really love it it's a really unusually presented podcast which we're actually going to talk with jake about as well the style that he that he goes with is very very unique and really stands out it's great stuff um and ooh, you were just like one sentence short of me being able to have you vamp all the way to me getting to the actual interview with Jake Brennan. Uh, but anyway, so yeah, here it is. Uh, our conversation earlier today with Jake Brennan, host of the Disgrace Land podcast. So I appreciate you coming on with us, Jake. Um, both been big fans of the show for a while, and this is really awesome to have you on. I, I guess to begin, where did your fascination with music begin? Like not just music itself, but the lore of music. 
I think a big part of it was reading Helter Skelter when I was like 15 years old, that book by Vincent Bugliosi, the prosecuting attorney in the Manson murders. And, you know, that's one of the first true crime books of all time. I mean, Truman Capote's In Cold Blood is one as well. But there's, there's music is just uh, interwoven within that book. I mean, the, the whole Beatles connection to Charles Manson and also the Beach Boys connection as well. And I think that's where, you know, my fascination with the, the sort of stories that aren't necessarily known in music storytelling started was with that book. When when you start to kind of like what what is the sort of the alchemy for you for for the music and the people like how how much does a great story about the musicians enhance your love of the music you know now and and then obviously when you were sort of like Andy said kind of in that formative stage definitely makes it more interesting you get the complexity behind the artist and I listen to Jerry Lee Lewis in a different way now obviously knowing that he most likely killed one if not two of his wives uh, it definitely causes you to look at the person differently and listen differently and I thought that you know that that tension that that sort of dimension would be a, a good a, a good way to uh, tell stories about these musicians that um, and in this podcast medium, it's it's certainly proven to be, you know, something that people are interested in. How do you drill down in terms of the stories that you want to tell? Because there, <clears throat> I guess, thankfully for you, there are, there are a lot of different uh, items you can choose from, you know, and, okay. and, and, and then, you know, once you, you've said before that, you know, the, the, the starting point is finding something criminal that can be attached to these different artists, whether crime they committed or a crime that has surrounded them. But then from there, how do you sort of determine what you think would be most interesting? Um, that's that's a good question because it does start with the crime, right? I'm trying to tell, you know, I'm not looking to tell a story about a musician that's been told before. I mean, no one needs to hear the story of the Beatles again. I mean, how many times, you know, we know it. So there's- Except of course for season seven coming <laughs> up of Disgraceland, which will feature some stories about the Beatles. Yeah, well, I have two episodes on the Beatles in season seven, two episodes, two more episodes in season eight. But, you know, these, I guess this does answer your question. I, I'm looking at ways in to talk about these artists that have not been talked about mm -hmm. before. So, you know, if you're gonna, if someone's going to invest in a, Beatles documentary that you're going to find on Amazon, right? Or, or wherever Netflix. I didn't mean that to be a plug. I swear to God. Um, <laughs> away. It's fine. Um, you know, if someone's going to invest and pay for that, you know, they're going to want you to tell usually, you know, the, the cradle to the grave story or of the artist or, you know, a, a certain period in time. And what I'm looking to do is I have 30 minutes in a podcast medium to, 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 hit you over the head as hard as I can. And I'm looking for hooks that you haven't heard before. So to me, the story of the Beatles in Japan in 1966 with the threat of right-wing assassins taking them out and then being locked up in a hotel suite for the entire time, except when they're on stage and fearing for their life, that to me is a more interesting window into that band that we've, we've read so much about so far. And it also has that crime angle to it as well with this assassination thing that's going on, not to mention all the drugs that they're on at the same time. And then you've got Paul McCartney donning disguises and sneaking out to go see sightseeing. It just makes it more interesting if you can find that entryway. Yeah, I mean, it, it, you, mu you must be disappointed that, you know, like George never robbed a bank. Like you know, <laughs> George, George's house was famously raided um, you know, in the last 10 years of his life and he was beaten senseless. He was almost murdered, you know? So like, if I'm going to tell George Harrison's story, I'm going to start there, you know, mm -hmm. like, and, and go in through that window as opposed to George Harrison was born the son of a butcher in 1945, you know? And it's like, come on, man. You know, it just doesn't interest me. I've heard that so many times, you know? Well, that's interesting too. I mean, on, on a couple of counts, because a the two things that you just mentioned with the Beatles, uh, as far as what happened in Japan and the story you just told about George Harrison, like I consider myself somebody who knows a fair amount about the Beatles. I've read a fair amount of, about the Beatles. I didn't know those stories, yeah. so that in and of itself speaks to what you want to do with with the show. But what I also think is interesting too is like these being the stories that you feel like haven't been told enough with rock and rap and you know 
overarching pop music because there's always been kind of an outlaw mystique to rock, yet you feel like these are the stories that haven't even been told enough. Like, I, I think that's actually really interesting. Yeah, yeah, the mystique is definitely there. And, uh, you know, the funny thing is, I, you know, my dirty little secret is that these stories have been told. And they're they're all out there. I'm not a journalist. I'm a storyteller. You know what I mean? Like I, I can all these stories are in these books. You know, and I just I, I what I do is I I put I put a different narrative together that is in this new medium, and therefore it may sound new, but I'm very upfront about the fact that I I you know I point people to all these sources on my website where they can go find the stuff. But it's like you know I was talking to somebody about this the other day. It's like if you're reading Albert Goldman's book on John Lennon, right? And you read the story about John Lennon hearing Bruce Springsteen on the radio in 1980 and getting pissed off and jealous because Springsteen's getting played and he's able to, to, to sing in a melancholy way but still make pop music out of it, but John isn't allowed to. You, you might think to yourself, oh, that's an interesting anecdote. But then if you hear it in a 30-minute single-voice narrative podcast, it just with sound design and you've got John in the moment and he's pissed and frustrated there's something about that story it it, it has a different resonance because it, it's it's in this different medium so we, we we as listeners think about it differently for some reason i have nothing to do with that really i just got lucky that that, that happens to be the case um because like i said i'm not banging on doors and interviewing people and chasing these stories down they exist in books and documentaries and all over the, all over the internet you know we live in a time where it's it's all right there how much of the storytelling is enhanced, do you think, by the amount of overlap, particularly if you get into like, you know, the 60s and 70s and and some of those bands, like, you know, in season seven with with Graham Parsons and the story you tell there, you know, there's the overlap with the Rolling Stones and, you know, and you you go back to, you know, all of, all of these things. You talk about the Beatles and the Stones, they have their own little things that are going on. The, 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 the ability to kind of weave these different people um, who are so prominent in and out of all of these stories? How 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 much does that kind of play into the to the kind of the mystique and the the fun of of the stories that you're telling? It's a lot of fun for me. I I love it. I look at it as you know. I, I try to look at it as like a TV show that I'm watching where the best television shows build these worlds, you know, like Sopranos, you're in the, you're in this world of Northern New Jersey and you're just like, you know, you've got all these different characters that are overlapping. And I try to think of Disgraceland as the, the same way, you know, you've got, you, you have, you know, the Grateful Dead, you know, at Altamont with the stones when Graham Parsons is there with Michelle Phillips. And then you've got, the Mamas and Papas episode I'm going to do with the, with Ms. Michelle Phillips and John Phillips, and there's another Rolling Stones connection there. And it's I mean you could I could really just build the entire show around uh, you know different touch points of the Stones at this point because <laughs> they hit so many different people. But um, for me, it's a lot of fun, and even and even beyond just the musical side of it, like when you can in popular culture when these artists touch other famous people like the Aesop Rocky episode with the connection with Donald Trump and the Kardashians. And that, that's just like, it's hysterical. It's just, it makes me laugh and it entertains me when I'm researching it and putting these stories together. And I'm sitting there thinking like, well, the president of the United States is sitting on his toilet, taking a shit, tweeting about Aesop Rocky and getting him <laughs> out of prison. Like that is amazing. Um, so that's the like, crazy yeah. thing, Jake, is that's like the, 748th strangest thing that happened over the last four years. I mean, it took me a second to actually remember what you were talking yeah, about. Yeah. And in anything resembling even semi-normal times, I'm but going to know that's, exactly that's, that's what the, it is. That's the batshit crazy story you tell about the Carter administration that like tops everything. This one, it's like a footnote. Right, right. Do you think, uh, on that little side note, do you think we're going to miss the last four years? In like 20 years, we're going to wake up no. and be like, me personally, no. Do I think like big media might? Yeah, yeah. I actually think that's one of the things that Donald no. Trump's yeah. correct yeah. about in the sense of like, yeah, you're going to miss me when I'm gone a little bit. News stations, television content. Human beings, me personally, no. I, 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 I'm okay without the angst. I am very, very confident, Jake, that 20 years from now, <laughs> I will never think, you know, you don't know what you got till it's gone. <laughs> don't even <laughs> try, I am... 
100% confident that will never be said. Uh, you, you, you might think that. when we have our robot president and he, right. <laughs> he's administering water straight into your brain. <laughs> how often does this robot president tweet? Yeah. Hopefully not at all. Yeah. <laughs> you you talk about guys as like TV characters. It's really fascinating because like I, the, stone, the, the ultimate music debate from that era is, are you a Stones guy or are you a Beatles guy? And growing up, I was always more into the Beatles. I like the harmonies, like the, and as I've gotten older, I find the Stones, I, I, I identify, I gravitate more towards the Stones than I do the Beatles. And some of that is, I think, because I just find them interesting. And like those, those cross points that you're talking about are part of the reason that, you know, and the, the drugs and the, the rock and roll, it's a dirtier, grimier kind of thing. Who are the characters when you think about them that way that you've really come to love and appreciate in ways that you didn't before you started doing this this project? Certainly, the Grateful Dead, which I was not a Grateful Dead fan, um, and I, I kind of got obsessed with um, like young Grateful Dead. Like those guys were like hardcore nerds slash the coolest people on the planet at the time and didn't like in the way that like they didn't care about being cool so they were cool you know like you've got phil and i never thought the grateful dead were cool in my life like the opposite i hated the grateful dead and the more i read about them i was just like oh man these guys are the, they're the, the shit they're amazing like you know phil lesh is like you know composing symphonies in his in his bathroom you know on like with like <laughs> as like an 18 year old driving a mail truck and jerry garcia is giving banjo lessons and pig you know to, to other to bob weir who's a student of his and ends up in the band and above a music shop and pig pens like hanging out at the railroad tracks with some old black guy who's a bootlegger drinking hooch you know it's like they're just like and, and he's like 18 years old. It's like <laughs> cooler people than that. And the, the thing that makes them especially cool is they, they literally didn't care about being cool. It was the opposite. And I think, you know, to kind of bring it full circle to your question, if you look at, you know, the first couple times I saw Kimmy Shelter, the, the Maisel's documentary on the Rolling Stone, Altamont, I didn't catch that. It was like the third or fourth time I saw it where I caught it, where the stones land and they land in helicopter and you know the stones walk up and jerry garcia is like i forget who he's sitting with i think it might be someone else in the band but he's sitting on a wall and he's talking to the stones and they're like what's going on you know what's happening with the festival and jerry's explaining it like if you watch that now you can really see that jerry's stark starstruck and he's trying to keep he's trying to play it cool because the stones are the biggest band on the planet at that time and the dead are just sort of you know becoming big and it's just one of those fascinating dynamics where there's this weird like power tension between the two. It's it's awesome. I love I love I love getting clued into that stuff and being able to write about it and and put it in the podcast. Hell's Angels beating up rock stars just doesn't seem right. Doesn't man. seem right. <laughs> <laughs> that Maybe part, I'm yeah. That's Andy's favorite line in the movie. That, well, <laughs> that part and when the Stones are on stage. And it's starting to get rowdier and rowdier. And Keith point, they stop. And Keith points out of the crowd. He goes, that guy, that man, if he doesn't stop it. And then he just kind of trails off. Like, I don't know what we're going to do. <laughs> I know. I know. I know. The ball's on. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, he's the <laughs> ultimate, ultimate pirate. He did not care. You know, it's awesome. What's the, what's the through line? Like when you do Chuck Berry and then you do Graham Parsons and you do Tupac and so, like, what's the through line that kind of connects the the stories and the music uh, in ways that that help you create a series like that? Well, there's kind of the the spine of just you know pop music history, and all, all these guys and gals are are they they're on that somewhere. They're a branch off of it, and they all connect in some way. Uh, specifically for me, episode to episode, though, the through line is always crime. I'm always looking mm -hmm. for uh, an actual crime that I can, or, or multiple crimes that I can use to tell their stories so that I'm not just, you know, some guy talking about an artist that's oh, sure. a million different times, you know. I just mean, but like, when you're, are there commonalities that you see, you know, that sort of span these eras and span these artists that kind of tie tie these these names together? 
Um, you know, not to play like, and I don't know if this is a, what you're looking for for an answer, but not, not to play like armchair psychologist or, or nothing, but most of them, uh, the majority of them just come from these insane backgrounds where they never really had a chance as children based on how they were raised. Um, and of course there's exceptions. Rolling Stones are exceptions to that rule. Um, but if you look at even someone like John Lennon, who's, you know, both his parents abandoned him. You know, if you look so, like someone like James Brown, who I tell this story all the time, like he was, you know, disciplined. He's raised in a whorehouse and disciplined by being stuffed in a burlap bag and hung upside down and beaten with a stick. Like if that, these upbringings don't happen, these artists don't become the artists they are. They don't have that drive they have. It's like, it's like Tom Brady, right? We've got the Super Bowl coming up. Like we're in New England. I'll be rooting for, for Brady. Like, that guy's not Tom Brady doesn't become Tom Brady if he's not shit on his whole career as an athlete, it, it, even until when he gets into the big leagues, you know, until he gets into the pros. Like he's not playing under Drew Bledsoe and he's like, he's got a chip on his shoulder. And that's that's how he ends up being the greatest ever. And I think there's a lot of that sort of same, um, you know, in, insecurity and chip on the shoulder of these artists where they feel like they have to constantly prove themselves on stage and in the studio. And also they're just driven to wild excess off stage and they feed each other. One of the things that I think Disgraceland does really, really well is towing that line between making bad behavior feel compelling and even at times honestly exhilarating, but without actually celebrating it. Like, mm. How how do you deal with that, I guess, for lack of a better way of putting it, dilemma of at times really bad shit being done by people who are, they're undeniably cool and they're undeniably charismatic. And there's a chance that I think if done incorrectly, people could walk away from the show with the wrong message. Yeah, I'm sure they have walked away with the wrong message. <laughs> but um, Fair point. I, I don't know. I think a lot of it might have to do with just how I, I'm just, you know, I can objectify it and I can look at it as, oh my God, I, I can you believe, it's, it's like I'd be telling you the story right now, I'd be like, can you believe this shit happened? Like that's sort of always my, my perspective on it um, because I, it is unbelievable. And, and I'm not like, you know, this whole thing kind of hit me um, when I was right. The idea for the show kind of hit me right as my first son was born. And I was reading this, uh, I was reading this book, like actually for the second time, this book, Please Kill Me by Legs McNeil. And this details like all the early punk rock guys in New York, like Lou Reed and, and Iggy Pop when he came to New York from Detroit. And I remember reading, having just had my first kid and reading about the behavior of some of my favorite rock stars and literally for the first time in my life being like, I wouldn't want to be anywhere around these guys. And I certainly wouldn't let them near my kid, you mm -hmm. know? And, and then the tension kind of hit me. It was like, but I love their music, you know? Like, so what, how do you reconcile that? I well, yeah, but it's funny, like as somebody who watched the first season of Narcos uh, on Netflix and, <laughs> um, and like completely took the ride, I was like, God, that Escobar guy, that's, that's pretty awesome. <laughs> like, there's just, like, there's like all the stuff that they're doing. I'm, and I know that's not the takeaway, but like, yeah. I think that's, isn't that part of the appeal though of, of rock and of music and of, of, of rap and whatever it might be that there is a rebelliousness to it. There is a, a nonconformity to it that a little part of all of us kind of wishes we could engage in that kind of thing, even though we know we wouldn't and it's destructive and there's a downsize, but there's always that little part of you that wishes you could just say fuck it to the world and do whatever the hell you want, like these guys did. I think, yeah, I think it might even be beyond music. I think it might be distinctly American, you know, like we, as a society, we've grown up, you know, rooting for the guys in the black hats, you know, the, the whole, the, the Westerns, this is Sergio Leone, I know he's Italian, but the Clint Eastwood movies and then the, the mafia movies that we've had growing up. And now maybe it's sort of, you know, hip hop stars and musicians. It's the same sort of outlaw, outlaw thing that we root for. Yeah. The, one of the things also too, that I find really interesting about the show is the presentation because it, it's much closer to like spoken word or prose than a traditional podcast. And even as somebody who liked it from the beginning, it took a little bit of getting used to. Mm -hmm. And I, I would imagine, I may be wrong about this, but from your perspective, 
doing it that way probably required some overcoming of fears. Like it's, it's a very unusual way to do it. Like A, is that correct? And B, how did, how did you land on that style and what was required to get yourself there? Yeah, it was a, it was a risk. So it, it definitely was a little scary, but the older I get, the more I tend to think if something creatively makes me feel uncomfortable and scared, then I should probably run toward it as opposed to away from it because I think that's where the best stuff gets made. You're going to fail a lot. I've certainly failed a lot in this endeavor. There are episodes that I hear now that I'm just like, oh, God, really, dude? Um, but to answer your point on sort of the, the presentation of it and the structure of it, I, it was it was done out of necessity. Like I didn't I didn't know that I could do a podcast in a chat style. I didn't know that I would be a good interviewer. I didn't know how to necessarily do that. I thought I had an idea of how to write a script and then voice it in a way that might be interesting. And I, I certainly didn't plan for that style of prose or uh, the sort of subjective narration that I do, it just I just kind of grew into it. And once it started working, I, like I said, I just kind of ran toward it and kept doing it. Um, and it's ended up where we're at now. And you mentioned Narcos. I was actually watching Narcos way back in the early days of the show. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking, I remember watching that show and going like, these guys have no idea what Pablo Escobar was saying to his hitman in his kitchen before this thing happened. And but there they it, it occurred to me that they weren't going outside of the bounds of of history in reality. And I was like, it's just drama writing. That's how all great historical drama gets written. You take these liberties. And I was like, I can do that. And it, that's how I can put my stories together in a way, because I'm clearly, you know, I've, like I said, I'm, I'm not a journalist and this, you know, I'm doing something that is entertainment and and I'm doing it in my way. You know, um, the last question I have for you in the introduction to every show, there's always a reference to the music loop preset on your Mellotron, which you play because you can't get the rights to a certain piece of pop music, which you always describe in very vivid terms as a type of cheese. Um, two part. How do you define cheese? And once Disgraceland blows up even further on Amazon and you perhaps have the ability to afford the cheese, Will you still consider? Uh, will you still keep using the Mellotron? Well, you have to understand this is the highest quality cheese in the world. It is the most expensive cheese in the world. There's there's no check that anyone could write me where I could afford this cheese. Um, people think that cheese is necessarily a bad thing, and it is certainly sometimes a bad thing, but it's also a good thing. And you know, beyond that, there's not much thought or. <laughs> well, that's, that's why I wanted to ask because there's some music you describe as cheese. I'm like. That's pretty damn good. I, I don't I don't know what Jake's well, standards I mean, are, but this yeah. is really good music. She loves you, yeah, yeah. It's cheesy. It's also a great pop song. You know what I mean? Right. So we can have it both ways. And you know, the Mellotron, I don't know, man. That just it just happened. I was looking for a way to contextualize it and I just kept doing it. Um yeah, so there you go. My big takeaway is I'm kind of digging them. I just kind of dig Mellotrons now. So I'm gonna just want yeah. one of they're very soothing. I, I like yeah. I like the sound. Um, it is uh, a really fun podcast series. If you've never heard it, uh, you're going to want to go back and, and, and catch up. Uh, you can catch it on Amazon Music starting uh, February 2nd, which is today. It's, it's already there. Um, great new episodes. You can catch up on all the old ones. You learn a lot. Uh, you, you just it, it brings so many of these stories to life. Jake Brennan, the Disgraceland podcast. Thanks so much for coming on, man. This was a lot of fun. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I really, really appreciate it, guys. Um, love to keep talking to you in the future. That'd be great. Thanks. Awesome. Is I can't, now it's there. Not. You go. I was gonna uh, say, Jake, I am pressing a lot of buttons here. Yes, you, you are. You got a lot going on. I'm not complaining. I am, uh, I'm not out. I you got a lot going on. A little criticism, a little inherent criticism in there. Just a, a touch of it. Like let's let's keep it. Let's let's hit the right buttons. Okay, Brian. now I'm bitching you out. <laughs> Before I, I sincerely wasn't. Now getting a little sick. Now I'm angry. Bit. All right, so um, it's a, it's it's a really fun show uh, that's that's worth checking out if you like music um, and you like storytelling and you like crime, and Andy yeah. likes all of those things. Yes, um, I do. I mean, it, it's funny too, because like his podcast hits on 
as you know, a topic that I find endlessly fascinating, which is just what we are willing societally, um, individually, both to compartmentalize, you know, in the name of entertainment, in the name of sports, often in the name of family, politics, whatever, like what people are willing to compartmentalize. Mm -hmm. And in the case of music, you know, there, there are a lot of all time great musicians, band leaders, incredibly talented, creative, you know, frankly, genius level people who often have done really bad oh, yeah. things, really bad things. people really, really badly. And like our willingness to compartmentalize it again, individually, collectively, whatever varies often so much case to case. Mm -hmm. We are all hypocrites to some degree. Oh, yeah, good Lord, we do this in sports all the time. So, yeah. I mean, but, it's, I, it's, but I find it fascinating. I really yeah. do. Well, it's also to it, but I think it not in the, it depends on the type of behavior, obviously. But like, you know, that's why I asked that question. Like the, you know, nobody really wants to be, you know, the the rock and roller, hair, you know, this, that, the, you know, the, the drugs, this, that, whatever. But there's, but again, it's that, it's that rebelliousness. These guys just have that kind of fuck it attitude and they do whatever they want. Most of us don't live that way for good reason. Um, but there's a little part of everybody who just wishes uh, that they could. Um, anyway, check out the podcast, Amazon Music. Uh, well worth your time. Seven seasons. You can go back and catch up on. It's all evergreen. You don't, You can pop around. You can yeah. just pick your favorite artist. Do whatever you want. It's really um, great. All right. So the big news over the weekend, of course, was the Rams trading um, Jared Goff for Matt Stafford. They gave God, you've already forgotten break. the guy. Yeah, you know, whatever. You know, you're not in my town anymore. You know, the, the guy who looks like the guy from the from the movies. Um, as they say, Andy, that escalated quickly. It went from, hmm, the Rams might be sort of interested in uh, Matt Stafford to, holy shit, Matt Stafford is a Ram in about 35 seconds. It did not take long. Um, both of us had a lot of reaction to it, um, but we decided it might be better to get some, some analysis from people who know better. Uh, Talk to Lindsay Theory from ESPN. She covers the Rams for ESPN. Talk to her this afternoon, and um, she broke this down for us, as she always does, beautifully. Hey, Lindsay. Thanks so much for coming on. We know you got a ton going on. It's uh, the Rams been a little bit uh, busy here, uh, so we appreciate it. Were you surprised at how quickly this happened? Like the, it went from. Matt Stafford is a possible guy for the Rams too. He's here and golf is gone. Hey guys. Yeah. It happened quick. I mean, I think the handwriting was on the wall for a bit that there was definitely some trouble between Jared Goff and Sean McVay. But by the time you recognize that to that Leslie news conference, when he was talking about uh, Jared Goff's a uh, Ram right now, it's January 26th to uh, a couple days later. And Jared Goff is now a Detroit lion. I mean, it happened very, very quickly. Yeah, you could you could feel Les Snead really trying to you know aboard the semantics train in a way that was as aggressive as I've ever seen an exec before, but also like ride the semantics without trying to make it unclear. Yeah, we're we're totally open I've, to moving this guy. And I've never seen anybody be that nakedly yeah. obvious about being unsatisfied with their quarterback who seemed to be like untradeable and unmovable given his contract. Like, they did not hide it at all. I've never seen that before. No, and it was kind of bizarre because at one point it's like, okay, well, you want to move on from this guy, but you're not exactly endorsing the guy. So where's his trade stuff? Where's his trade value, I should say, um, as you continue to sit here? And I guess they pointed to the fact he's won 42 games. That's second only to Tom Brady in the same span. Um, but, again, it was just – kind of increasingly bizarre and he was given so many chances to give Jared Goff some kind of vote of confidence about his ability, about his future. And none of that happened, which I think um, is really what made probably a lot of reporters, myself included, go into overdrive trying to figure out, well, where's this headed? What can, what can they possibly do to unload this contract? So like, what was it? Two years ago, the Rams make this massive investment in Goff. Mm -hmm. um, and was, 17 yeah. It's a, a wow. Okay. So, and you know, the, tons of money, which is still going to be an issue, which we'll talk about. How did it get from that to he's a Detroit lion? 
Uh, well, two years of uh, basically the offense underperforming. Um, so I think what's really interesting here is how much of that's on Sean McVay, because, right, Sean McVay is the offensive genius. He was hired here to kind of be a quarterback whisperer, develop Jared Goff. Uh, Sean McVay signed off on the Jared Goff extension, and then suddenly it's 2019-2020, and Jared Goff is not the quarterback that probably Sean hoped he would develop into. So some of this is on Sean McVay, but he's the head coach, and he has he's a proven winner, right? I mean, he took a four-win team, and they have now had four straight winning seasons. Um, so obviously he gets the benefit of the doubt, and he's going to get a new quarterback to get in there and try and make his offense go the way he wants it to go. That, that actually leads to something interesting I wanted to ask you about. Um, the day of the <clears> – <throat> excuse me, the of the trade, you tweeted out, so in the last 10 months, Sean McVay has wanted mm -hmm. to unload Todd Gurley, Brandon Cooks, and Jared Goff in the name of improving the offense, which has played inconsistently since Super Bowl – God, I can't do the numbers – L-I-I-I. Um, <laughs> That's actually what they call it. It is Super Bowl L-I-I-I. Yeah. <laughs> if the offense doesn't – I believe is what you're looking for. I, sure. Roman <laughs> right. are my there. It's all good. No, I mean, just come on, man. It's America, 53. Um, if this offense doesn't improve in 2021, is that now on Sean McVay? Mm -hmm. to, to, and you were talking about this earlier. Does Sean McVay, do you think, grow too easily dissatisfied with players? And, and, and I don't mean specifically Goff, because Goff is his own particular case. And, and I think you can make a very easy argument that he's – gone through regression over the last couple of years, but like as an overarching question, because for a team that's been as good as them the last three or four years, there's been a lot of turnover. Yeah. I think that's a really fair question. Um, as Sean McVay would say, Sean McVay is probably better suited to answer that one, whether he grows too tired of players quickly. Well, no, he'd uh, say you have to watch the film first. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but I think, I mean, my point in putting that tweet out, and it obviously is, it's gotten a lot of response. People all have opinions on it, which is terrific. Um, but essentially, it's like Todd Gurley was the problem with the offense in 2019, right? Todd Gurley had the bad knee. Todd Gurley, they couldn't do the run game. Sean couldn't do what he wanted because of Gurley. Gurley's knee was the issue. Okay. They also, Brandon Cooks, you know, they said, uh, and Lesney basically said this the other day in his news conference, like, you know, you pay someone a value and if they're not playing to that value, you know, you kind of decide, are you going to hang on or get rid of? So Brandon Cooks, they felt wasn't playing to that value and his targets in 2019, um, his catches, his yards, I, all that is fair to debate. Um, but he did provide value in the sense that he stretched that offense. But again, they decided we're going to get rid of Brandon Cooks. And of course, part of that's to make space for, for other moves. Um, but none of that improved the offense. You know, then that's the point. You get rid of the guy with the bad knee. You get rid of the receiver who you say isn't producing. And so the offense should have gotten better in 2020. But it didn't. It regressed even more. Um, so now you get rid of the quarterback, and you think that Matthew Stafford's the answer, and he very well might be. But at some point, is it the players or is it your offense? And, uh, you know, I, I know we all – I, too, cling to that 2017-2018 season and I'm still mesmerized about what went on. But at some point, like we're all living in the past, and need to be looking at this offense for what it is right now. So, what is it that they think they're gaining um, with Stafford that they didn't have with Goff? Yeah, I think um, when you really go back and you look at what Stafford did in Detroit, and I know this is also kind of a hot button topic because he hasn't won any playoff games in three appearances, but I, it's his. And this is the funny thing. Jared Goff did have a good arm. Um, so they do love Matthew Stafford's arm. They love his presence in the pocket. They love his ability to in play action. Uh, I think they like him as a, as a leader. I, I think that he's kind of just like, I don't say he's Jared Goff, but better. But he's he when, when I think of Jared Goff in 2018 and how good he was, I think that's what Matthew Stafford is on a more consistent basis. He can make all the throws. He can navigate pressure. He can navigate the pocket. He can play outside the pocket. Um, he's not necessarily a proven winner in the sense, but I know a lot of, uh, a lot of that has to do with the fact that he never had a strong rushing game in Detroit. They've been historically bad there. Their defense has been subpar since he's been there. Um, so I think the real hope there is that he's just the missing piece to consistently be the same quarterback and a really good quarterback week in and week out. I mean, wins sort, of the, sort of the idealized version of golf, you know, that they can use to get to Super Bowl L I I I I next year. <laughs> I believe, Brian, that would be Super Bowl LV. L -I -V, yes. 
Yes. So LV is 54, isn't it? LV? No, it's LV. It's LV, I believe. No, that's 55. That's 55. 56 would be LVI. Oh, yes. Yes. Um, you are correct. I, I've lost track of what year we were actually in at this point. <laughs> um, it, it's funny, though, like when you were talking about the the winds, the, the winds themselves can be misleading. And like you mm-hmm. said, the, the context of these winds matter, um, both when you're talking about Matthew Stafford and the lack thereof, but also with Jared Goff and the ones that he's accumulated and how much of that actually rests on him versus other people. How much of a gap do you think there actually is between Goff and Stafford? You know, I'm going to be perfectly honest. I haven't watched enough of Matthew Stafford. I just didn't spend that much time watching the Detroit Lions. Uh, Boy, did you miss out, Lindsay? Yeah. Okay, um, let me rephrase then. How much of a gap do you think they think there is? You know, like in 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 terms of tangibly putting that guy on the field versus Goff. How much of a well? There's two first round picks and a third round pick gap. Yes, them right. I mean, that's the price they paid for him. Um, of course, part of that trade that uh, that second first round pick is basically compensation for taking on Jared Goff's contract. Um, but I yes, it is the gap in what they think the the skill set is is the difference between winning a Super Bowl and fading out early rounds of the playoffs. I mean, that's that's the most tangible gap I can prove to you mm-hmm. without saying, well, they like his arm versus his arm. They like his smarts versus his, you know, football IQ, whatever that might be. The, the gap right now is the Super Bowl or not. That Brian and I were debating this offline, and that was my reaction to this trade in terms of what they gave up because it really is the price of moving golf, I think, even more than the price of acquiring Stafford. And when you take into account all of the other capital that they've surrendered in different trades, including the one uh, that was including the capital required to get Jared Goff in the first place, mm-hmm. like I, I feel like if they don't at minimum get to a Super Bowl, much less win one, I don't think you can look at this trade as anything other than a failure because otherwise you basically didn't get any better than you were. You don't make this trade, like you said, I mean, that you invest two first rounders to get Jared. I'm the number one overall pick, and then the 2017 first-round pick they gave away. You now have invested two picks to get rid of Jared. So that's four first-round picks. We're not even counting all of the extra picks in the later rounds that get thrown in there. I mean, not to mention, I mean, we all forget, but this is real money. I mean, the salary caps is other thing, but this is Stan Kroenke's money. And I know he's invested $5 billion in the stadium, and he's paid every – guy and make them the highest paid guy in history and whatnot but at some point like let's remember rich people don't get rich because they like wasting their money uh so at some point you know you gotta win games and i think that point's gonna be coming really fast for the rams with these moves uh obviously the stafford move you're gonna have to win next year or 2022 otherwise none of this was worth it i agree the bet I think that they're making too, and I, I that I think is kind of fascinating here is that the team is good enough to do that even after um, yeah. what happens this off season, and you know they're, they're going to get squeezed by the cap like everybody else is. But the expectation is, you know, that John Johnson won't be here next year, and uh, you know uh, Leonard Floyd will be gone. Like there's going to be a lot of holes they need to fill. Our, we'll get to like what they may be able to do and where they you know where the offseason goes from here. But is there like a legit concern that the team that was on the field this year, even if you add the quarterback, might lose enough stuff that they might not just might not be good enough? What's the other thing the NFL? Like every year it's a different team, right? You can have a lot of the same personnel. Every year it's a different team. Mm-hmm. Um, look at the defense. So Brian Staley came in, top ranked defense. That's really hard to replicate. Um, that's it. Just is what it is. Like defense. I mean, but they. That's not to say they can't be really, really good. But to have the number one defense, there's only one place to go, and that's not up anymore. Um, so they can still be really good. So I, I don't expect this guy to fall out there by any measure. But I do think what's really interesting here, and maybe something that'll get talked about more once we get beyond this quarterback craziness, is just the defensive scheme this year. And I, I think this is really interesting and, and um, probably points to why maybe there's been some turnover on, on the defensive staff. Raheem Morris is coming in to, and they want to keep Brandon Staley's defense, which Raheem Morris is a great coach. There's no debate there. I, I would not argue against him being a good coach by any measure from everything that I've been told and heard. But 
you're coaching a defense that you've never never coached before. You're four three back coming to a three four. Uh, you, Staley was obviously from the Vic Fangio tree. He has his own intricacies that he threw in there, and they want to continue running that. So you have to teach your new DC that, and that that to me is just really interesting when you have assistant coaches teaching. You know, and McVay obviously will also, but the DC how to run the defense. He's That's actually really coaching, interesting. I'm sorry, I mean, but a lot of coaching turnover generally. Like yeah, it's a, it's a big, big turnover in the staff. Yeah, it's lost. Um, their cornerbacks coach went to Detroit. Their linebackers coach is down with the Chargers. Um, their second, or their safeties coach is interviewing for the Packers DC job. Um, on the offensive side of the ball, Shane Waldron went to Seattle to be the OC. Uh, Andy Dickerson was their assistant offensive line coach. He went to Seattle to be the one of the. the coordinator i think passing game coordinator run game coordinator one of those guys um so yeah i know can't keep track of them all but yeah it's, it's a significant amount of turnover um especially on the defensive side of the ball which was obviously your strong point last season yeah i mean it's actually interesting because a couple weeks ago and this was basically right after brandon staley ended up taking the job uh with the chargers to, to be their new head coach we were talking with jordan rodriguez and rich hammond and it was so it was so after the fact but she Jordan was seemed like under the impression that under Raheem Morris that they were going to be changing up the scheme altogether, and you know with more time and clarity, it might have becoming more uh, apparent now that they're looking to try to replicate what was there before. Mm-hmm. That that's going to be really challenging. It, it, it speaks to also, I think, just the the challenges that come with trying to preserve what what has worked for you when the pieces keep changing, whether you're talking about coaching staff, whether you're talking about on the roster, like Mm -hmm. try. And then even when you get back to Sean McVay and the offense, like the general question of trying to jam square pegs into round holes and and wondering about whether certain things still exist to maintain moving forward. I think that's going to be really fascinating to watch. Yeah, definitely. And it's, what's interesting is, um, I think it's a tough situation. You bring in Raheem Moore. So do you, do you switch your whole defense? Do you go to a four, three and do what he's comfortable with, what he knows best, what he believes in? Um, or do you teach him what's been going on here? Uh, you know, like I said, these are all professionals. They'll figure it out. But the bottom line is like the difference between winning a Super Bowl and being a playoff team are those fine line kind of things. And this, this could be one of those things. What what are the what do you think they believe to be the biggest things they need to fill? Um, whether it is a, a one more downfield receiver, uh, you know, you know, concern about the interior of the offensive line, whatever it might be. What are the what are the the the, the, the things now that are on the checklist? And then how much money are they going to be able to, to use to fill that stuff out? Yeah, good question. So it's really funny how these things play out. Uh, <laughs> one of the things we need is a deep threat receiver. And it was funny because our friend Gary Klein over at the LA Times kept asking this season, hey, like, do you think you want a deep threat out there? You guys don't really throw the ball long, you know, yada, yada. Well, what do you know? They throw one to Robert Woods, like 50-some-odd-plus yards, goes for a touchdown. And after the game, they were all laughing and like, oh, Gary, you were right. And we really didn't see that the rest of the season until now after the season, after the fact, they're saying, yeah, you know what? We maybe need to have a true deep threat guy to, to stretch a defense. Like, yeah, us reporters, we know something. Or Gary Klein, I guess in this case, he was the one who diligently asked the question. Well, that's, what, yeah, that's what happens when you show up to games 13 hours early. You learn stuff. <laughs> yeah, I know Gary's good. Uh, so I would say that, I mean, obviously if Matthew Stafford has the ability to throw the ball deep ball. And that's not to say, like, you know, Robert Woods is – tremendous receiver he has the ability to do that and um, cooper cup has the ability to, to, to stretch the field and go for some long plays but they really need like brandon cooks provided a huge service and that's you know we can argue about the yards the catches whatever later but his speed the threat of his speed alone going down the field the defense had to honor it because at any moment it could bite you um versus this season defenses could crowd the middle of the field because they had no one to stretch it so I think for Matthew Stafford, for them to really get the most out of him, they have to go find someone who can do this, um, whether that's in free agency, whether that's in the draft. I don't know, because it's going to be a huge question how much money is available, depending on how far that cap drops. Did, did Real quick on this, though, did they did they feel like they didn't have anybody who could go downfield and just didn't have that stretchy speed, or did they not trust Goff 
to be able to sort of be in the pocket. Like they, you know, there's a line of yeah. thing that they sort of dummied the offense down so much to make everything high percentage. It's so, it's which, so you know, could, they, could they have done it? It's, it's weird. I, I, I'm honest, I've, I've asked, I haven't gotten like an answer that I feel is right on about it because Jared Goff can throw the deep ball. Like we mm -hmm. saw him put in 2017 and 2018, beautiful, like beautiful touch on the ball. Um, so I don't know if they didn't have a guy who could consistently do it. They said Josh Reynolds was the guy and Josh proved to be pretty good in a lot of instances, but we didn't necessarily see them even attempt it. So is that on the offensive line? Could they not hold the block long enough to, to let that play develop? Is that on Jared Goff? Couldn't get rid of the ball fast enough? You know, just took the easy throw every time instead of going for the play he was supposed to. I don't know. And, I, and to be honest, I don't know that we're ever going to get a really clear answer on exactly what the cause of that whole issue was. Uh, all right. So my last thing is, you know, there was there was a perception last year that the Rams were going to be short talent and they led a lot of stuff. And then, you know, Leonard Floyd happens and he was available and they pick up Leonard Floyd, 10 and a half sacks. Now Leonard Floyd is probably leaving somewhere else with the cap situation around the league the way it is. Do the Rams have an expectation that there will be a lot of those types of guys just available on the market or that maybe it won't cost as much to keep their own dudes? How do they plan on navigating this offseason um, to, to fill out the rest of the roster? Yeah, it's going to be challenging because there's some teams that come into the season well below the cap, even the lowered cap, right? And they're going to have the ability to pay people if they choose to. Um, you know, the Rams are not alone in being the only team that's going to be strapped for uh, cap space. I mean, there, it's a lot of teams out there. These guys sign contracts every year with the uh, – with the thought in mind that the cap's only going up, which is typically the case. This is so out of the norm. Um, how much money they're going to have and how much they're going to be able to spend, I don't think they really know. I know I know, I sure don't know. Um, but Leonard Floyd, if it's anything like Dante Fowler, he's going to get paid and the Rams aren't going to be able to afford to keep him. Uh, you know, John Johnson, same thing. I mean, John Johnson, it is wild how underrated in the NFL that guy was as far as the accolades. I've been saying it since like his second season that John Johnson is is good. And is he going to be a top paid safety? No, he's not. But he is a guy who's going to earn a lot of money. Um, so I would just expect that he, can, he they won't have the money to, to make it work with him. Because when you look at what the Rams situation mm -hmm. is right now, they have six players, about $110 million. So it's a lot of roster to fill out beyond that. Uh, last question I have, and th this has been something of a drum beating point for me, but I, I've felt that the last few years, uh, one of, if not the biggest reason that the offense has regressed isn't even about the line. It's not about Jared Goff. It's about not being able to replicate Todd Gurley and what yeah. he did, what he did at his best. And I, I think that's really ultimately what made that offense work. With that in mind, how much confidence do you think they have internally that Cam Akers can I don't want to say replicate Todd Gurley because he was offensive player of the year, you know, MVP caliber good, but somebody that, that can get them closer to being able to do more of the things Gurley did and in turn the offense work better. Yeah. And it's so funny you asked that because I was just texting, um, somebody was texting me about like the offense and I was like, it's never been the same since Todd Gurley. Nope. He, you know, he was everything in 2017 and even 2018 that knee started to decline at the end. But ever since Todd Gurley started to decline, this thing has not been the same. I mean, his value for what it was for Sean McVay to get here and have Todd Gurley. I mean, this guy is built differently. He could catch, he could run, he could block. I mean, and he just yeah. he's a physical specimen, say what you want about the knee. But when you stood next to Todd Gurley, like that guy was oh my God. huge. Yeah. I mean, and the way he was built, I mean, not to like go on about this, but it was amazing how wrong he was. Um, anyway, that being said, so I, like, <laughs> I mean, my <laughs> word, <laughs> workforce. I mean, when you look, when you think of like, like, like just strong, anyway, okay, <laughs> going forward, Cam Akers. Oh, no, I'm not, I'm just saying, like, he won. No. You're 100%. Like I said, this is, I've been beating this. There's a couple back stand next to you that are like that, right? Ezekiel Elliott built. Um, and now that's not to knock Daryl Henderson and Cam Akers, but they're not built just to withstand the wear and tear that Todd Gurley did. I mean, Daryl Henderson has been um, good at times, really good at times, in fact, but the guy's hurt all the time. 
And then Cam Akers comes in, and I think that he has a ton of potential between the tackles on the edge. He can catch passes at level. I think he can be a lot of really great things, but like he's never going to be Todd Gurley. Um, so how how many how many touches can he get a game, and and how much? Can he sustain a whole season? We still don't know that. He was hurt a couple times this year. And, again, that's not really their fault, but it just speaks to Todd Gurley's availability, sustainability, and how much how important of a piece that was in the success of that offense, whether they could do that again. So yeah. I know it's a really limited answer, you guys, but the Todd Gurley, I, I was already thinking about that today, Andy, and it is, it's a fascinating question. Well, it's just so fleeting, too. I mean, like you, it turns out Todd Gurley couldn't replicate that for much more than a season or yeah. two because the, the grind is so. Grind. And yeah. at, at some point, maybe hindsight's always easier to look back. But at some point, it's like, man, maybe in some of these games, they should have give Todd Gurley a break and tried to stretch that out a few more. You know, like at some point, how many hundred yard games do you need when you're mm -hmm. winning? I remember but, that. It came up. Yeah. All yeah. right. Um, we'll let you get back to it because, you know. The Rams are doing things. So Lindsay Theory covers the Rams for ESPN. Great, great rundown, uh, breakdown of, of what all is happening. Uh, you can find that at ESPN.com. We'll tweet it out as well. Thank you so much for doing this. We know it's a busy time. We always appreciate it. Guys, appreciate you having me. Thanks. All right. So – a few things we want to talk about before we get out of here about that. The first one is like yeah, the part about McVeigh that I think is fascinating here. Like, I'm not saying this is where this is going, but you remember, and it's not apples to apples before Rams fans get mad at me. You remember the idea that, you know, Luke Walton was a genius for a little while too. Bill Jackson's like, disciple. Yes. And, you know, you and I, Brian, you and I covered Luke as a player and the one common thing everybody including the two of us Everyone. said at the time was make a great coach wouldn't just make a great coach he already feels mm -hmm. like a coach in the making yes everyone said that including us and you know look he he was he did great in golden state with a team that was obviously quite talented uh the knock on him there was anybody could win with that and he has not been in the same kind of situation with the lakers um or it wasn't, and then you know you can argue about how good. Like, but the 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 point being, not nearly as many people think that Luke Walton is a uh, is a genius anymore. And at some point, look, Sean McVay has been very successful here, and this year, um, I actually thought he did a really good job, kind of changing and uh, the 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 tenor of the team and kind of bringing this offensive thing to like you know what, our strength is our defense. That's how we're going to play. That's how I'm going to call my offense, which makes me look less genius-like. So, I mean, I, I think he's good. But at some point, the shine comes off the apple. And I wonder, like we talked about on the, in, the, in the conversation with Lindsay, this could be the thing that if in two or three years it doesn't work, uh, Stan Kroenke might keep spending money, spend plenty of it, uh, but he may start spending it on other people. I, I think this is a really good comment from the Nathan Mark. McVeigh is overrated, I reckon, not saying he's bad. There's a difference. Very few be, people are geniuses, yeah. Right. You can be overrated without being bad at what you're being overrated for. It just means that you are overrated at some point for whatever reason at this particular thing. Like, But that doesn't mean that you're bad at it, especially when you know, in the case of somebody like Sean McVay, like out just out of the gate, he was being referred to as this offensive genius. He was being referred to as an offensive genius before he actually coached, you know, coached yeah. his own team, like just based off Washington and, you know, the, the family tree and his time that he spent around uh, the game his whole life. And look, he, he is clearly a really bright guy. And a lot of people around the league thought he was pretty innovative when he first came in. But then, but then, like, like I said, I will keep beating this drum. You wonder just how much having like a singular talent like Todd Gurley made everything well, look just incredible. There's no question, but there's no question that makes a big difference. But I, I think they, I think there's so much, there's so much like little things here to to kind of go. first of all he has been very successful. Even last year when they didn't make the playoffs, they were still at a winning record. They won nine games. Um, you know, the argument is always, oh, you know, they were this close to being whatever. Like, that's how the NFL works. Every team 
is five plays away from being three games better or three games worse than whatever the record was at the end of the year. Um, I, but the, to me, what you're saying about Gurley is why they needed a better quarterback because you no longer have the uh, the luxury of the running back, the sort of transformative running back, along with the quarterback who is on the rookie deal, so it doesn't really matter with it. So now you actually need the production sure. of your quarterback. You need to do it in a more conventional way. I don't disagree than, but what than I, everybody else. I don't disagree with you there. And and look, I, I have been I, I have been more high, relatively high on golf than you've been the last couple of years, but I, I have agreed. He's regressed and he has he has not looked good over the course of this year, but my and maybe we'll get maybe we'll get a better idea of it with Stafford, but I'm not even sure. But what what I have been wondering a lot the last couple years is if it's not simply a matter of needing a better quarterback than Jared Goff, you know, performed over the last couple of years, which they didn't. Again, I'm not arguing that, but wondering whether or not the degree to which Gurley carried a lot of what was going on and made everything so singular, there would only be a handful of quarterbacks that mm-hmm. could make it sing well, at that level regardless. Yeah, no, I think those, I, are, I, those are separate questions. No, you're right. And, and, I, I, and I think what you're getting at is important, but I think there are more quarterbacks who can solve the, the problem and elevate you than, than you can find a running back who can do. Because look what, I mean, Lindsay's exactly right. I mean, you stand next to Gurley and you don't, you know, when you're, all football players are big. And so when you get Gurley sort of isolated and you just see like he is huge. Yeah. And at when he was healthy and huge, how the hell do you tackle that thing? You don't apparently we score 30 touchdowns a year or whatever it was. But he could you he could be used as a receiver. Right. And he was also a really good pass blocker. So you could keep him on the on field. The field. Absolutely. And work him. Which may have been the problem. Exactly. I mean, that's why he's in Atlanta. But like, and work him, the problem is they they paid him a lot. Um, The the part, and we'll we'll leave on this, the part that I think, though, is also worth noting, and that I respect about what the Rams are doing, because Les Snead has made some choices. Like, they keep kind of just rolling over um, like the, 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 the potential like pay date for some of these contracts that they've given out that haven't worked, um, you know, Cooks and now Gurley and now Goff, and like just it just keeps going. The part that I think is worth noting is that the Rams are doing this in a way that is so different than NFL convention, which is it's not superstars, it's not the NFL, like it's not the uh, NBA. Like you need a great quarterback, and then after that, you need depth in a lot of places. You you know you got to be careful about your salary cap. You got to be careful about you know investing too much in two or three or four guys. That's all the Rams are doing, and they're giving up first round picks with the idea that there isn't that much difference between twenty three and forty one. Like once you start getting to the first round and second round and all that kind of stuff, and I'm sure they believe that they have a ton of data to back this stuff up. And whether or not they're right is you know, potentially impactful on how a lot of teams approach these things, particularly good teams that want to stay good for a long time um, and what you're able to get away with and what you're not able to get away with in the NFL and the salary cap league and all this kind of stuff. If you draft well and if you do, like, they're a, a walking experiment that nobody else in the NFL is trying. Yeah, it's going to be really interesting too because when you're saying that they, you suspect that they have the data to back that opinion of themselves, I imagine one of the things that they look at is their success draft uh, drafting yep. in later rounds or getting guys who weren't drafted at all. Like mm-hmm. they, they have been very good at that. And that could be an element that makes them, I don't want to say devalue first round picks because everybody knows if nothing else, they matter in currency. But just sure. in terms of directly using them for their own team, yeah. And then you yeah, know the idea, the idea too that you know like everybody was worried about the defense last year, and then all of a sudden Leonard Floyd pops up, and he's like, oh, well, we got an edge rusher, and then you know, I think they think they're going to be a lot of those guys out there this year that they're going to be able to pick up this year's Leonard Floyd for a year, be able to find a receiver who can go down downfield for their a next year, Corey Littleton, whatever it might be. All of this stuff you know, because the league is going to be so messed up for a couple of years salary cap wise. Um, I think that they can go get these guys and that they'll want to come here and play. Um, so anyway, we'll, we'll see. Um, 
that was fun. Again, uh, subscribe to the podcast. You can uh, catch the interview with Jake Brennan. If you missed it, you can catch Lindsay Theory, all the guests that we have. Um, tomorrow night, CJ Toledano is going to be joining us. Really entertaining guy, but also to somebody who's doing some really creative and clever things uh, around sports and how stories are told in sports. Uh, so we're really excited to have him on. Also, the husband of former late night happy hour guest, Megan Gailey. That's right. A comedian who loves talking basketball, who was on about a month or so ago, people may recall. It's longer than that now. It's, oh, it's, the show know. just keeps rolling on. It really um, does. Thursday night, we'll uh, we'll take a look at the uh, Lakers. The unstoppable game. train that Walter White says. <laughs> that this is. Nothing stops this train. We yeah. like Thanos are inevitable. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, we're going to redo some rescheduling for Friday's show. A uh, little uh, thing came up today. Uh, but we'll figure that out. And we've got some good stuff set up for next week as well. Courtside um, <laughs> Karen on Friday. <laughs> you know what? If she's available, I would have her on. That would draw quite a number. It would. Um, here we are. You know how we date. talked before about like the entertainment value that you find from Disgrace Land that you know is inevitably there but doesn't make you feel good about yourself? That would be that having it, her on. Yeah. 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 But I'm not above it in both nope. cases. Yeah, man's got to make a living. All right. Uh, so we'll see everybody tomorrow night. Appreciate it. Donk you, Nidolan. <laughs>